Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to FT Politics, our weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the Brexit wars are back again and the battle of slides between the UK, the EU and the state of the talks before they've even begun. Plus, we'll be looking at the UK's new immigration system announced by Priti Patel this week and what it's going to mean for the economy once we leave the EU. I'm delighted to be joined by our EU correspondent Jim Brunston down the line from the Council Summit and political correspondent Laura Hughes. Thank you all for coming on the podcast. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. And we also appreciate some positive reviews. The Brexit hostilities have returned this week and the EU and the UK have been arguing over... PowerPoint slides. Late one night this week, the Downing Street Press Office brought up a slide from 2017 saying that Michel Barnier, the EU's chief Brexit negotiator, had promised the UK it could have a Canada-style trade deal and was now reneging on that promise by saying there had to be extra provisions on competition, state aid, fishing, you name it. In return, the EU produced a new slide of its own saying that one thing that had been forgotten was geography. The UK is much closer to the bloc- and therefore needs to have much tougher provisions because it's not exactly Canada. So who is right here and what exactly is going on with Brexit? Jim Brunson, let's just begin with David Frost, actually. So he's Boris Johnson's special advisor. Special advisors normally work behind the scenes. They speak through their bosses and don't do things in public. But Mr Frost came to Brussels this week and he gave a lecture to talk about the UK's position on Brexit. What did he say and what did you make of it? Yeah, it was a very bullish intervention from Frost. As you say, number one, it's unusual to have someone who's an advisor, who's not a minister, come to Brussels, the EU capital, and set out on the record where the country stands on Brexit. That was something we definitely weren't used to seeing in the previous phase of Brexit negotiations with Theresa May's chief Brexit advisor, Ollie Robbins, for example. And the message was also very clear. It's basically that there is a real division, even a philosophical division in a way, between what the EU wants from the future relationship and what the UK wants. And he was saying the UK doesn't want any special treatment. It wants a stripped down deal like the trade deal with Canada. And that means that it should be entirely out of the orbit of EU rules. And obviously that's very different to what the EU intends to do in these negotiations. I thought one of the most fascinating things was the intellectual difference here because the vote leave view of the world, which is now the one that occupies Downing Street, the Treasury, the Foreign Office, the Home Office, all the key positions in Whitehall are now held by people who have this view of the EU and of the world. And in some ways, it's very different to the view we saw under Theresa May's government and Ollie Robbins, who was Mr Frost's predecessor as the UK's chief negotiator, because David Frost was putting forward this idea that it's all about sovereignty. We want to have our say in how we do things in the future and there would be no point in Brexit if we can't have that kind of say. And in some ways it was very coherent. The problem with it was it was very different 
to how the EU says things and the UK has to negotiate with the EU to get that trade deal. Exactly. He basically came to Brussels and told the EU that the UK is going to economically surpass it. So he came to Brussels and said, we have a vision for Britain's future and that Britain is going to economically surpass the European Union. So sorry about that, but that's what's going to happen. And we're going to do it by breaking free from your rules. And if that means frictions, if that means difficulties for manufacturers, if that means difficulties for farmers, basically so be it. The UK accepts those frictions because there is a medium to long term project for technological supremacy and supremacy in competitiveness for the UK vis-a-vis the EU. So it was an incredibly bold message. But um, it's got to the point now, really, where the EU says, well, we've got a vision of how these negotiations are going to work. I mean, sure, there could be differences of opinion, but there's meant to be a kind of shared project here. And that shared project's meant to be set out in the political declaration that Boris Johnson agreed with EU leaders last year. While the UK has veered completely away from that, really, and is now just saying, we want a basic trade deal. Maybe there's some other stuff worth discussing, security, cooperation and so on. But we want a basic trade deal and we'll accept the downsides that come with that and we're moving on. So this is something you and I have both written about this week is what has changed since October. Because when you go back to the political declaration, which Boris Johnson signed off on, that set out the parameters for the long-term trade agreement, it talks about the factors of geography, the fact the UK is close to the bloc and therefore cannot just have a carbon copy of a Canada-style trade deal. And when that went through, it was kind of, OK, fine, but something seems to have changed between then and now. The most obvious thing, of course, was the general election, that Boris Johnson now has an 80-seat majority in the House of Commons. He won that election on a manifesto that talked about a clean Brexit, a hard Brexit, whatever. But the sense that I've got some folks in Brussels, and I'm sure you have too, is there's this bafflement that nobody's actually said to them, look, actually, we're ripping up the political declaration, which was, it's not binding, but it was signed in good faith between the UK and the EU. And this question of if it is being ripped up, then what trade deal, if any, can be struck? Yes, exactly. And it's very interesting to put it that way, because obviously that's not what the UK is saying. Like The UK has never explicitly said it's putting the political declaration in the bin, but that's effectively what it's doing. It's trying to downplay the existence of that document. And Brussels responds to that in two ways. One way is to say, well, look, you don't really want a Canada-style deal, do you? Because if you had a Canada deal, there would be tariffs on some sensitive agricultural products. The Canada deal doesn't provide complete liberalisation of trade. The UK is also clearly looking for some more stable arrangement on market access for financial services than the Canada deal offers. The other thing that EU says is, as you said, the UK is not Canada. And Brussels is actually increasingly relying on that argument, saying, look, every trade deal is tailored to circumstances. And the UK trading relationship with the EU is so much larger than the trading relationship with Canada. Different estimates put it at six times larger or even 10 times larger. They say, look, you can't have something which is just a cut and paste of that anyway, because that doesn't work for us. So, Jim, now let's look at where this goes in terms of the state of the negotiations, which are going to begin in the first week of March there. Because when the mandate was produced by the Commission, it was in line with the political declaration and the kind of things we thought might be achieved and routes for compromises on the ECJ and other parts of the deal. But it's now gone off to the member states and it's toughened up in several respects, which I think makes getting a deal even harder. What's happened in that process? 
So when the draft was published by the Commission, and we looked at that, myself and other journalists in Brussels, I think the things that leapt out to us then were that there were a couple of points that were obviously going to be difficult. So the EU had set very high ambitions when it came to access to UK fishing waters, for example. So we knew that was going to be difficult. The EU wanted the UK to stay in line with its state aid rules, so limits on subsidies to struggling industries. We knew that was going to be difficult. But you looked at it and you thought, well, by and large, this is within the realms of the political declaration and also some complaints that the UK had made looked exaggerated and the mandate foresaw a role for the European Court of Justice for example but actually largely quite a constrained role and an inevitable one really which is that if the future relationship refers to any specific EU laws then the European Court of Justice is the court that can interpret those laws. Now we're getting into slightly different territory in part because the UK has moved off in a different direction but also that there's clear signs from the national governments not least the French that they want more and that they are going to be more demanding when it comes to these level playing field requirements, these requirements for the UK to stay in zinc with EU rules. The mandate's not going to be transformed in that area, but it is going to be considerably toughened compared with the Commission's initial draft. There's language that's going into it now, more language being worked on in the coming days, explaining that the level playing field has to endure over time, that it has to stand the test of time. And those are all hints at some kind of ongoing linkage between the UK and at least the rigour, the level of EU regulatory standards. To be honest, the picture keeps getting bleaker in terms of the potential for a compromise. Because if you look at this issue, it comes to use the technical jargon, you've got regression versus some kind of dynamic alignment, that when you looked at the political declaration, the kind of thing the Commission wanted was to take the clauses from Theresa May's deal with regards to her Northern Ireland protocol on non-regression to say that once you've left the EU, you're not going to undercut it on environmental, social, food standards, what have you. That chimes with what a lot of Boris Johnson has said in his speeches about Brexit, saying we're not going to leave the EU to lower standards. We're going to have the highest, most beautiful standards you can imagine there. You could see a space for being a deal done on that. But dynamic alignment to say the UK has to constantly update its standards to follow EU standards, that goes against very much what David Frost said in his lecture. And also, just objectively, it doesn't seem quite right for a trade deal because what the EU would be saying is, you know, it's the Hotel California thing, that you're leaving the block, but you're never actually quitting its standards. Yeah, I think where we're going to end up with this is the EU mandate will ask for effectively dynamic alignment on state aid. It will ask specifically for non-regression in areas like environmental policy, labour law and tax policy as well. But there will also be other language in there, a bit more general, hinting at dynamic requirements that also cover those areas that aren't state aid. But they're going to be phrased in a bit more of a general way. So there's not going to be a specific request for absolute dynamic alignment in all those areas so that the UK continues to copy paste EU rules in all those areas. For example, like a country um, such as Norway would do because Norway is in the European economic area. But there's going to be this clear push for some kind of dynamic relationship. And for the EU, the room for the compromise is in defining with the UK exactly what that system might be. But of course, the EU is now wondering, well, when it comes to that kind of conversation, does it even have a negotiating partner? Because the starting point is so far away. 
So when you put this whole thing all together, you know, I would say it's probably about 50-50. There can be a deal done because of the EU moving in one direction and the UK moving in another direction. How does that sort of play out? You know, do you think the talks will begin and then fall apart? Or do you think they'll sort of just kind of bump along and then we'll have a big crunch point in the autumn? Because, of course, this thing has to all be done by October if it's going to be ratified and in place for the real Brexit day, which is the 31st of December 2020. Exactly. I think the limited time available is vital when looking at the whole context of these talks, because the simple fact is they don't have time to negotiate something unique, something incredibly complex. You know, it's one of the ironies of the situation where the UK is actually moving away from the EU. You know, normally in a trade deal, it's about countries trying to have a closer relationship. And French President Emmanuel Macron has set this out, that actually it's easier and quicker to do a deal with high ambition than a deal with low ambition. Because frankly, if they can't agree on a tariff-free, quota-free trade deal, if the UK won't give the EU the assurances it needs, then you need to negotiate tariffs for specific products. And that takes time. And that time is not there. So that's what creates this hothouse atmosphere of these talks. You don't have time not to be ambitious. It's a very strange world we're in with this, but that's the one we are in. I think there are staging posts along the way in all of this. At the moment, it kind of suits everyone to have a bit of a row, probably. Then there's going to be an EU-UK summit in June. I think that's going to be quite an important moment, not least because time would be running out by that stage for the UK to request any extension of its transition period. And then when we get into the autumn, things start getting very difficult because then you start running out of time to ratify anything. Now, of course, the UK says it's ready to go without a deal. It dresses this up now and calls it an Australian model. But that just basically means no deal. The interesting thing is they've been very public about that. And you've had complaints from the business community. Obviously, business is getting more and more anxious. But people haven't been marching in the streets saying we can't live with this Brexit strategy. So I think the sense here is that the UK thinks it's crossed a kind of Rubicon in saying we're ready for trade barriers. We're ready for trade friction. And having crossed that Rubicon, it's made the UK more confident in its position. And that has people pretty worried here. And I think when you look at the political dynamic back in Westminster, Boris Johnson is still in his imperial phase, that the Conservative Parliamentary Party is going along with everything that's happened if we looked at the row under Andrew Sabisky, who was a number 10 aide who lasted a number of days after some controversial comments. Only two Conservative MPs spoke out against that. Only no ministers would, even off the record, talk about this guy who had views that have been described as racist, as sexist and promoting eugenics. The fact that you've only got two Conservative MPs that would speak out against that particular row means that when it comes to the Brexit crunch point, it's even less likely they're going to speak out against that. So when we do get to those points in June and in October, and if things are looking as if they're heading towards a no deal, then I think the Conservative Parliamentary Party will go along with it and the business community will probably just have to lump it. Whether there's a Brexit deal or not, one thing that will change at the end of this year is the UK's immigration system. Boris Johnson has vowed to end free movement of people when the transition period ends in December 2020. It's going to be replaced by an Australian-style points-based system where those who want to come and work in the UK have to accrue points to hit a certain threshold, favouring those working in high-skilled occupations who can speak a good level of English and meet the salary threshold. 
The idea of the new system set out by the Home Office this week is to speak to the British people's desire to control migration and reduce the level of low-skilled workers coming to the UK. But it's also been criticised by the business community, saying that it will lead to job shortages across key sectors. So Laura Hughes, this new system has been in the works for quite some time. The Migration Advisory Committee, which is this independent body that looks at what the UK's migration needs are, have examined what could come from a post-Brexit migration system them. This is the new system. What do you make of it? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the number one emphasis that's being put out by the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister is that we're going to see a reduction in low-skilled workers. And instead, we're making it easier for high-skilled workers to come into the UK after Brexit. That's the key thing here. And it's something that the Prime Minister has talked a lot about. It was a pledge that was made during the referendum campaign to effectively take control of our immigration system, bring an end to free movement in the EU. And the way that they've made it easier for, let's say, university educated tech specialists from India to come here is that they've reduced the salary that you need to come and live here and work here. And they've also actually reduced the university level education that you need. You just need something that's the equivalent to an A-level. The idea being that you'll get people into those industries. Of course, there has been a backlash from business because we're going to see certain sectors like the social care industry, hospitality really hit by this because we know that they rely on a lot of low-skilled workers who come from the EU. There could be two consequences to that. One potentially is that we could see moves towards robots coming in and doing the jobs that these workers used to do. We could see strawberries being picked in fields by machines, for example, in 10 years' time. That's one incentive here. And rather bizarrely, Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, has been talking about getting those that aren't in work to come and do these jobs, which was met with some ridicule yesterday because we know that a lot of these people that she was talking about are either carers to relatives, they are unemployed because they're disabled, they are elderly and they've retired, or they're students. So there are questions there. But overall, the message is very clear. It's we voted for Brexit. We want to end free movement with the EU and that's what they're doing. One of the parts of this proposal is the salary threshold. So if you earn less than £25,600 annually, you won't hit some of the basic points you need to get to come and work in the UK. That's been criticised in particular because a lot of those workers you've just talked about in the care industry, in the hospitality industry, people don't often hit those levels, particularly when you're outside of London. And that leads to this question of shortages. And firms have said, you know, how are they going to get people to run these businesses? Now, Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, who's been leading the charge on this, she's come out with this figure of 8 million people who are underemployed or underutilised in the economy, which I guess may be true in some respects, but that's a big gap to fill. If you look at where net migration was, the UK sort of 300,000 a year, if that's going to be reduced substantially, which is what the government wants, then trying to get those people into jobs is A, going to be a challenge and B, businesses are going to have to pay more for those British workers to do that and invest in skills. And I guess there's this issue of a lag between the two, going from this, as the government would see it, cheap labour coming from the EU to expensive British labour, that's pretty problematic. Yeah, I mean, the one argument that they're making is that potentially employers will have to pay more. A lot of the argument that we've heard is, well, British people just don't want to do those really low paid jobs. The response to that then might be, well, if you can't get access to those workers and pay them those low salaries, you're going to have to increase the salaries and therefore employ those Brits that apparently didn't want to do those jobs in the first place. And that actually 
weirdly does tie into the whole government's agenda at the moment of increasing productivity, levelling up across the region. So there is an argument there, but it's going to be really costly for business. And interestingly, under Theresa May, there was this immigration white paper, which recommended a hiatus period of about two years after the transition ended, that would give business time to continue to employ these low-skill workers as they developed and worked out how they would cope. Next, the government has returned with a majority and they've decided actually, no, sorry, business, you don't get that two-year period. We're taking back control on day one of the end of the transition. So good luck with that. But look, you'll have to pay more. You're going to have to start developing the technology that will allow you to cope. There will be a list of job shortages and the government is going to put that list together, which is a bit contentious because some businesses say it shouldn't be for the government to decide, well, okay, fine, we'll lower the salary threshold if you're a ballerina, but not if you're in another profession. They're uncomfortable with that. But it will be a test really for the government to see how this experiment works, because if in a year's time, two years time, we have statistics put out that show actually we have a huge gap in our social care industry. We need more workers and we need them on these lower salaries and we just can't cope with this struggling sector that it could backfire on the government. But immediately now in the short term, they don't seem to mind too much because they like the overall message, which is, we are taking back control. Because we know this is one thing Sajid Javid was very concerned about, that he wanted to have that transition period. We have to assume that his successor at the Treasury, Rishi Sunak, will not be pushing back against that. And one thing I was interested as well is that when Priti Patel was talking to the Cabinet about this, we know that she said to people there won't be any carve-outs or any opt-outs, whereas in fact there are. And one thing they've got is seasonal worker permits. They're going to allow people to come over here to work during those periods to pick fruit and work in agriculture, but that will not have a route towards full-time employment or citizenship in the UK. When you put this all together, the one I was talking to Jim about earlier with, we're going to have huge amounts of trading friction coming in the end of this year, combined with this new immigration regime. The whole thing is going to be a real step change for the UK economy. And it is not hard to see how this whole thing could backfire the whole picture, that you're trying to change our trading relations, leaving the single market and the customs union for the first time in four decades and having to do customs checks, paperwork, potentially tariffs, depending on how those negotiations go with the EU. Then your supply of labour is changing entirely. And one thing we know about the Home Office is it doesn't have the best track record for introducing new systems and for exactly going to plan. So if I was Boris Johnson, I'd be pretty nervous about what's going to happen come the 1st of January 2021. Oh, it would be interesting to see with these new tough immigration rules and Labour being a major issue, will that come up in the negotiations? Because, of course, if we're not accepting people on no-skill wages, well, that's going to actually also have an impact on EU countries or that could come up in the negotiations. But yeah, it is a huge risk. Everything's going to change and it feels like it might be business that takes that cost. And I think that might be a, a risk that number 10 are calculating they're willing to take because... Boris Johnson and the Brexiteer argument has really been pitting business and the elites down in London against the rest of the country. So if you have businesses crying out that this new system isn't working for them, well, they're probably calculating that actually most people go, well, you know, suck it up, pay people more then. And so it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. The Tories are claimed to be, you know, the party of business. This could be really tricky for Rishi Sunak, the new Chancellor, if he does just go along with what number 10 tell him to do which is again assume he probably will for the moment. But when you look at public opinion on immigration and you compare that to the reaction of the CBI and the IOD and all those other bodies that Boris Johnson and the people around him dislike, 
they are much more in tune with public opinion on this because public opinion people want to control borders. They think they want to welcome high-skilled people. And the Max report, the Migration Advisory Committee that underpinned this new policy, seems almost perfectly tuned with various polls from YouGov, Delta poll that outline what people want from that migration system. One thing we should just briefly mention, though, is that the government is taking a very hard-edged approach towards business. And as, of course, we recall what Boris Johnson once said, using the F word to describe business, and that attitude seems to continue throughout this government. There are some tensions within government as well. We've seen this week, and there's been two cases to mention, Laura. The first one was this chap, Andrew Sibisky, who was an aide who worked very briefly for a couple of days in Downing Street as a super forecaster. And he was working on defence-related projects. We still don't know exactly what he was doing, but he'd said many controversial things in the past that were deemed sexist, racist and flirting with eugenics. He was pushed out after a couple of days. The second thing we've had is this row between Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, and her civil servants that was on the front page of the Times on Thursday saying that Sir Philip Ruckman, who's the Permanent Secretary of the Home Office, they'd clashed wildly and there were some sources saying she wants to break the law, he doesn't. Also reports that civil servants have been very much overworked by the Home Secretary, and one civil servant was taken to hospital due to working throughout the day and night on deportations paperwork. So even though politics has calmed down a bit, it still feels like we're in a very febrile atmosphere in Westminster at the moment, and it's still a bit mind-boggling about all these stories and these characters and the kind of, I guess, is it aggression or is it just determination to get stuff done based on that election mandate? From those two incidences, it's just quite interesting to watch Number 10's response to it. So with the first case and this contractor brought in by Dominic Cummings, Number 10 on Monday would not condemn his comments. They would not distance the Prime Minister from them. And that was a bizarre strategy because it then became front page news. 32 times I can tell you I was there. 32 times. The spokesperson would not distance the Prime Minister from the comments made by Mr Sebesky on his blogs and Twitter. One of which was that, you know, does the Prime Minister agree that black people are less intelligent than white people? You just thought that it would be pretty obvious that the Prime Minister spokesman wouldn't condemn that. So very strange handling of that situation. And then again, with this row between the Home Secretary and her top civil servant, normally these things are dealt with quite quietly on the side. Number 10 might get involved and everyone has a quiet conversation. And then normally what happens is the Permanent Secretary gets moved on to a nice cushy role as the head of the National Trust, for example. It's not unusual for Permanent Secretaries to clash with their ministers, with their special advisers. But the fact that this has just come out in this way, really explosive briefings from Team Patel... And it looks as though it's because this row has been allowed to continue and it hasn't been quashed by number 10. So their handling of things in the last two weeks, I think, actually need a bit of questioning. And you do have to say as well, we're in the Westminster bubble, but we are talking about this number 10 power struggle. This immigration story should have been the prime story of the week for the government. This is a big new policy. It's exactly what they want to live on from the referendum and the general election. Whereas instead, I think a lot of the agenda has been dominated by this questions about Dominic coming to the court of Boris Johnson and all that stuff. Yeah, it is actually really bizarre that they've lost a grip on things this week. But that is what it feels like. The day after this huge announcement on immigration, you have the Home Secretary on front page of the Times having a row with a permanent secretary and being accused of bullying. It's really bad. I mean, her aides and allies are completely denying that she has acted in that way, I should note. 
But yeah, it's been a really extraordinary week. But it's been a very quiet week. There hasn't been a lot actually happening. They've allowed these stories to get out and dominate the news. Well, it's been parliamentary recess, but recess will end and we will be back next week when politics, I would say, returns to the normal, but I don't think it ever really will. Thank you very much to Jim and Laura for joining in this episode. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard and might see some more FT journalism, then you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. But of course, as listeners know, next week's podcast won't be a normal episode. It's going to be a live politics podcast because you can come to the FT on Wednesday the 26th of February to participate and enjoy all the magic of FT politics. We've still got some tickets left, so you can find more details at live.ft.com to come and see Robert, Jim, George, Laura and the rest of the team. So we look forward to that. FT politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda and Jack Denton. Until next time, thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.